Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the end of qualified immunity in New York City for NYPD police officers. We'll be celebrating the recommendation for clemency for rapper Mac Phipps after he has served 21 years on a murder conviction that he likely was not guilty of and had a non-unanimous verdict. Last but not least, today in the news, we're going to be covering the Derek Chauvin trial and we're gonna catch up on the proceedings in that case. During segment two, we'll be exploring how to defend a case where a child accuser is not going to testify against the defendant when he's accusing him of sexual assault misconduct. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the Law Office of Brian Jones and all of our social media channels to keep informed about your rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that New York police officers are no longer protected from civil lawsuits after the New York City Council passes a police reform bill? How amazing is that? I mean, it, it correct me if I'm wrong, are these the first people to accomplish getting rid of qualified immunity? I do believe so, yes. Do you think a lot of the states are going to follow suit? I'd be surprised if a lot of the states followed suit. I think what we're gonna see is this progressing on a city by city basis first, and then you may have a few states jump on this bandwagon, but the lifting of qualified immunity and exposure to civil liability for the conduct of police officers could be in the billions of dollars. You know, if you think about the number of, of times that police violate people's civil rights, uh, but the standard of proof is so high to actually hold them responsible. Um, I think a lot of government entities are going to say this is too high of a liability for us uh, to, to risk exposing ourselves to, which right, isn't that kind of crazy, Erica? Yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of crazy. <laughs> I can't, and we've been talking about this for so long. I remember when I first met you, just hearing the definition of qualified immunity. I as just somebody that's not involved in the courtroom. I, I really didn't understand what all that was about. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that have never heard of it before listening to the show. So, I mean, the education for it is great. And it's so interesting to see New York be the pioneers in getting rid of qualified immunity. So how is that legally possible? So remember that qualified immunity for those of us that don't remember is a legal principle that was created out of thin air by the United States Supreme Court. And it protects government officials from civil lawsuits alleging that they violated a person's civil rights. It, it, even though they broke the law, even though they violated a citizen's rights, they don't have to be financially responsible for that in a lot of circumstances. So the law, the new, the new law that was passed by the New York City Council has created a new local civil right that protects New York City residents and tourists as well from unreasonable searches, seizures, and excessive force 
imposed upon them by law enforcement. And it bans officers from using the qualified immunity doctrine as a defense in those cases. The change applies only to New York police officers. And there's a clause in it that requires the petitioner, the plaintiff, to establish personal jurisdiction in the city of New York. So they've, they've eliminated the defense and they've added some conditions to it. Wow, I mean, and that that is very interesting and, it, and it's been great news. I know that a lot of times when something like this passes, there are other reforms that are tacked on. Um, is that the case? So the city council also created a civil complaint review board to investigate um, this particular department and it's, it's really kind of sad history of bias and racial profiling. Um, you know, New York City, their, their notorious stop and frisk program um, has brought a lot of scrutiny and, and honestly sent a lot of people to prison um, based on dubious investigations. The legislation also clarifies the city's support for a state law that would give the Civilian Complaint Review Board the final authority on discipline for recommendations, I'm, I'm sorry, for discipline recommendations as it relates to law enforcement officers. Now, it used to be that the police commissioner made those uh, final decisions, but this law says, mm, we're gonna give that final decision to the Citizen Review Board. Now, the legislation also, the legislation also requires a quarterly report on all traffic stops. And that has to be produced um, every three months now in the city of New York. It requires the Department of Transportation to take over all investigations as it relates to crashes involving serious injury. It provides support for a state bill that would require new officers to live within the city limits. And it removes the authority to grant media press passes from New York City Police Department and gives it instead to the mayor's office and the Office of Media and Entertainment. So it removes that uh, New York City Police Department ability to restrict coverage of things like protests and other events where, let's be honest, police brutality is at its most frequent. What I'm curious about is how is the community taking this? I mean, I know that some people want to throw a parade and I know that there's going to be a lot of people that are just sour grapes over this. And I'm sure a lot of those people are part of the police forces. I'm, I'm only guessing. I, what, what is going on in that, in that vein? Well, Erica, book your ticket to Vegas because your bet was exactly correct. The police commissioner came out loud and proud about his displeasure at the thought of losing final say over disciplinary matters in his police department and the potential effect that that could have on the chain of command. Now, the, the police unions, which we've talked about numerous times, invested in billboards all over the city in opposition to the legislation. Uh, the Police Benevolent Association, which represents 24,000 officers in the city, was an incredibly vocal opponent of the, the legislation and compared this bill that protects civil rights to the programs like uh, Stop and Frisk and said that this is giving criminals a free pass. Um, now, this bill is designed to protect citizens' civil rights. 
And the Benevolent Police Association said, this is giving criminals a free pass. So we now understand that the Police Benevolent Association thinks of New York City citizens as all criminals. Um, the Legal Aid Society, interestingly though, also had some issues with the legislation. They find fault in the lack of investment in non-police alternative resources and predicted it will have very little effect on the deeply rooted and systemic problems within the New York Police Department. So, you know, it's gotten some criticism from both sides, although obviously significantly more from law enforcement and law enforcement supporters. Well, I mean, I think you and I both agree on this and uh, they need to support, they need the support services. And if just to put this in place without having that extra support, I mean, I'm just hoping that that's going to be coming in the near future. I do as well. And, and let's hope that things continue to get better and the people that enforce our laws actually are held to the standard of the law. People that have been held to an excessive standard in one individual case, and did you see this, Erica? Rapper Mac Phipps. Now, he's been in prison for 21 years, and he's fighting for his release after the evidence seems to indicate he should be exonerated of the murder charges which have put him in prison. Um, he may soon be released if the Louisiana governor approves his clemency application. I mean, this is incredibly interesting and disturbing. When I was speaking with you a little bit beforehand, it's, it seems like he should have never been in prison. So how is a non-unanimous conviction possible under federal law. I thought everybody had to, to vote him in to jail. Apodaca versus Oregon and Johnson versus Louisiana were the 1972 United States Supreme Court cases that challenged exactly what you're talking about, Erica. Every other state in the union, except Louisiana and Oregon, including the federal government, Everybody else requires unanimous verdicts in criminal cases. But Oregon and Louisiana had legal schemes in place that allowed for felony convictions in a less than unanimous verdict. And in both instances, racial oppression and discrimination were the driving force behind those policies. You may recall that Oregon literally outlawed Black people from living in the state for a substantial portion of its history. In 1972, that decision allowed this injustice to persist, and it hinged on the idea that the Sixth Amendment protects federal criminal convictions, and federal criminal defendants are required to be convicted by a unanimous verdict. But the 14th Amendment didn't apply the Sixth Amendment to the states in the same way. Now, in my opinion, this, is, this was a, a legal travesty. And just last April, we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court overturning Apodaca and Johnson in Ramos versus Louisiana. Now, the, we, that decision um, reversed uh, those laws, even though Louisiana had already changed its law, but it's still available in, in Oregon. So uh, last year, that decision was overturned 
And now they have to have unanimous verdicts here in the United States. But Mac Phipps's con conviction was not unanimous. And the question that's trying to be decided right now is, does the Ramos versus Louisiana decision apply retroactively? In, in other words, does it apply to cases that were decided before it was decided? I mean, if it isn't, then it's got to be such a bummer for him because, I mean, I, I heard that the prosecutor, the prosecutor used his lyrics against him at trial. How is that even possible? So, well, because you're in Louisiana and he's black um, is the short answer. But the more technical answer is the prosecution didn't have any forensic evidence. There was no ballistics investigation in the case at all. And uh, the, another individual confessed and five witnesses that testified against Mac Phipps have now come forward and said they were bullied and threatened by authorities to lie in order to secure his conviction. Uh, Mac Phipps had no prior criminal history, but he did have a variety of songs under his stage name, Mac the Camouflage Assassin, that had obviously violent lyrics. Now, he was part of the 504 boys who were signed by Master P and whose uh, 2000 album reached number two, um, as, as well as reaching gold status um, on the Billboard charts. So what the prosecutors did in this case is they cherry picked lyrics from 504 boys songs and they put those together to form their opening statements and closing arguments. And then they attributed those lyrics to Mac Phipps um, as his motive and, and his uh, general demeanor. Now, one of the shocking aspects of this is that the defense counsel never asked the judge to exclude those lyrics from trial. And because they never made that request, um, when that issue was appealed, it was reviewed on what's called an abuse of discretion and essentially is, eh, you didn't, you didn't complain about it at trial, so you can't complain about it now type standard. You know, Erica, we have tried cases with, um, I wouldn't say rappers on the level of the 504 boys, but local celebrities who had, let's say, some colorful lyrics and prosecutors expressed their intent to use those lyrics at trial and against uh, in front of a very, I wouldn't say against, in front of a very conservative judge, we were easily able to exclude those lyrics from trial. So it's really a complete lack of effort on the part of Mac Phipps defense counsel uh, that resulted in essentially him being convicted for a rap song. That's unbelievable. I mean, there's plenty of rap songs that have terrible lyrics. It doesn't mean those people committed those crimes. It's just what they sing about in some, and what they happen to sing about in some of those songs. So what do you think with all this being said, are the chances good that he'll be released? So if the unanimous jury law is found to be retroactively applicable, then his case will likely be reversed completely. Um, and, and he would be released soon thereafter, we would assume. Uh, he has been recommended for both parole and clemency 
uh, by the Louisiana Parole Board. But his recommendation is sitting on the governor's desk and not facing any action. Now, his, his last option is to file a, a post-conviction or a habeas petition under the Ramos decision and, and try and force the Louisiana, Louisiana court system's hand um, and, and force his release. So I, I think his chances are pretty good. It's, a, it's, a, it's really an issue of when, not if at this point. Wow. Um, well, I guess we'll have to keep watching and, and see what happens. I'm, I'm wishing for the best for him and his family. I do as well. Let's really hope that justice is served in this case. It, it seems like he's an innocent man serving a very long prison term. Um, and, and let's hope that he gets out as soon as possible. I know. And I wanted to mention that, I mean, like you really have to have a good attorney that knows the strategies because none of this would have happened. It sounds like had his lawyer had the checklist of things that the prosecutor shouldn't do. It's, it's disheartening when you see it from the inside and the, the easy mistakes, the simple mistakes that uh, defense attorneys make uh, that result in people going to prison for decades. It's, it's very disheartening. Uh, Erica, typically I ask, did you see in the news this week? But on this one, unless you were living under a rock, I know you saw the news about Derek Chauvin's trial uh, going forward with opening statements and witness testimony. Such a big case. It's got huge national recognition. And I'm really curious as to what you think about the opening statement so far. So my number one takeaway from this is I'm living in crazy town because it feels like the prosecutor is giving and presenting a defense style case. And the defense attorney is presenting his case like a prosecutor. Um, it, it's. It, over and over again, from voir dire to opening statements and the presentation of witnesses, it just feels like a complete role reversal. Um, every aspect of this case that I see. The, the prosecution's attorney did an excellent job telling an emotional, compelling story, providing a roadmap for what is evidence expected to show and preparing the jury for the emotional toll that the evidence would have on them individually during his opening statement. The defense attorney, focused on a reason and common sense um, narrative, and that's going to be their game plan. Um, you know, it, it can be a very difficult narrative in a case where racial injustice is an issue, um, because the next natural question is, well, whose definition of reason and common sense are we advocating for here? White people, police officers, Black people, citizens? Um, you know, but, but really focusing and, and trying to focus the jury on that one singular moment in time um, it is very much a typical prosecution strategy. You know, we don't want you to look at the context of an event. We want you to look at one second in time and not consider the, the mental aspect of, you know, the required elements of, of an offense. And, and so, like I said, it's just these, this complete role reversal. The, the three weeks of jury selection in this case have really set the stage for this trial. And so while opening is, is critically important, 
Um, it's, it is truly second only to the voir dire, which has already happened. And, and I think it's important to recognize that we as the public are only receiving bits and pieces about this case. It's important not to let commentators armchair quarterback this thing too much and second guess what the attorneys are doing. Um, until we get the full picture, until we understand everything that's actually happened in there, um, it, it's really difficult to say, you know, this was right, this was wrong. Um, but I, I've got to say that I have never heard uh, a prosecutor give such uh, a beautifully told emotional story than I did in the opening statement of this case. Well, um, that's that's great to hear. I mean, the story has to be told and it was a really frightening story uh, and and i'm glad that they are representing it properly in your opinion um so can you tell us i know you mentioned armchair quarterbacking and that's a such an interesting phrase yeah sure you, you can sit there and talk about it um what are what are some of the problems you see with with people doing that there's a lot of information that the media and the public just aren't going to have, such as rulings on admissibility of evidence or uh, statements by witnesses. Second guessing the strategy when you don't have all the information is bad practice. And in some cases, it could be unethical, depending on what type of discussion is being had. There's really very little benefit in making the criminal justice system into a sporting event where we can critique the performance of each side. These are truly hardworking professionals who I can tell you from experience are burning the candle at both ends for the entirety of this process. They really are putting their, their own lives and health on the line for both the government and uh, the defense. And you know, this is truly a life or death outcome at stake. This isn't a reality TV show. This isn't a sporting event. This is real life. So you know, with the, the little tiny bits and pieces that we know about the case combined with the, the high stakes, um, you, know, you, you really got to take these, um, you know, these, these comments and opinions about what's going on with a grain of salt. Now, what, what was interesting to me is that not all witnesses get cross-examined. And you would think that, hey, I always want to have the last word and I want to go up there and, and kind of combat what was said and, and save my case. Are there a lot of good reasons for not doing a cross-examination on a witness? Yeah, there's, there are a lot of witnesses that don't offer any addition to your story. And if they don't advance your story, there's no reason to cross-examine them. They may not offer any context, as in, you know, somebody who just pushed a piece of evidence forward on a chain of command form, or they offer a very minor detail that's necessary for establishing the charge, but it's not important to the defense theory of the case. It really is a, a, a strategy decision in weighing, you know, the mood of the jury, their tolerance of you know, the minutiae, the unimportant questions, um, the type of information that was presented on direct examination, and whether anything useful can come from cross-examining a, a particular witness. You know, cross-examination may open the door to something even more harmful in rebuttal. And, and, you know, last but not least, if a witness is 
is that harmful? Is very harmful on their direct? It may be better to just get that witness off the stand as quickly as possible so that the prosecution story can get done and we can get to the story that the defense is going to tell. I mean, that makes sense. And you don't have to muddy up the waters with unnecessary examinations, I guess. So that's, that's good. It's concise. I like it. Absolutely. And, you know, Erica, speaking of trial strategy, accusations of sexual misconduct are by far the easiest accusations to make and the hardest to disprove. An even more complicated situation emerges when the accuser is a child, and in particular in the state of Ohio, a child under the age of 10, as according to the Ohio rules of evidence, children under the age of 10 are presumed to be incompetent or unable to testify at trial. However, somebody who is accused by a child under the age of 10 is still entitled to exercise their right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. Erica, today in segment two, let's explore the strategies available to somebody that is accused of a child sex crime and now has that child unable to testify during the case. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a continuation of our conversation last week about sexual misconduct cases that involve children. So how can the state conduct a trial without putting the accuser on the stand? Because Ohio is a no-drop prosecution state, so it doesn't need an accuser to move forward with its case. When you combine that with the Ohio rules of evidence, which create a special exception to the hearsay exclusion rule, so a little bit of history, um, hearsay, an out-of-court statement, something that's said outside of the courtroom, made by somebody other than the person that's sitting on the witness stand, is hearsay. And generally speaking, that can't come into a trial. You can't sit on the stand and say, so-and-so said, said, blah, 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 blah. But there are certain exceptions to that rule. And one of the exceptions is a hearsay statement given to a medical professional. So a doctor can get on the witness stand and tell a jury what you told them. And in some cases, other caregivers can get on the witness stand and say what a child told them. And they can do that to the jury in a criminal case because a child under the age of 10 is presumed to be incompetent, unable to testify truthfully, that doesn't mean they can't testify entirely. There's a method to determine whether the child is able to understand the importance of testimony. And it begins with a motion that has to be filed by the defense where the court, the government's attorney and the defense counsel ask the child to see questions to see if he or she is able to, number one, remember and relay events accurately. And number two, tell the difference between truth and a lie. If that child is found incompetent, unable to tell the difference between a truth and a lie, unable to remember and accurately relay events, the case won't be dismissed. Instead, the medical professionals and people like forensic examiners, um, nurses who did sexual assault examinations um, and uh, other people who can observe the child and hear statements made by the child may be able to get on the stand and testify about what they did 
what the child said in furtherance of medical treatment. And that's even been expanded to include statements made to psychologists during the course of therapy. And that's embracing aspects of this exception, which has never been applied for, never been anticipated by the people that wrote these exceptions, but it's really become incredibly broad um, to use against uh, people who are accused of sexual assault. To me, that seems so weird to have somebody else get up on the stand and say something on behalf of the child. It, it, it just feels like it could be easily twisted. But I mean, of course, like some of those are medical professionals, but some of them are caregivers. So I don't know. I, I feel like it would be hard to, to get the truth that way. But I mean, I, I know that they have these systems for a reason, but I, I think it is another good reason to have an attorney to make sure that they are doing things by the book, especially when it seems like in these cases, there are a lot of special privileges being given to children. So can you tell me, like, how can a defense attorney best respond to the special privileges that are given to children under 10? I mean, we spoke last week about teddy bears and, and support dogs, but there's, there's some here that I had not heard of before. Yeah, so I think the first thing that the defense attorney needs to do in order to be prepared for the cross-examination of a child under 10 is to understand what a child of that age is like today. So you, ha you have to understand what are their interests, um, and, and particularly, if you can, about the interest of this particular child. Because as critical with every other kind of cross-examination, the first thing you have to do is, is relate to the person that you're examining. And you have to start to think and understand like them so that you can understand their motives. Because once you understand their motives to do anything, you can now start to understand what their motives are to tell false things about your client. If a child under 10 is found competent to testify, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to testify in the courtroom. The government can file a motion and request that the child be testifying by video link outside of the courtroom so that the child doesn't have to see the person that they're accusing. The, the government can pursue a motion, like you said, Erica, for the child to hold a stuffed animal or maybe face a different direction or uh, use an emotional support animal. And in, in all of these situations, it's incumbent on the defense attorney first and foremost, to make the legal arguments and object to these violations of the right to confront and cross-examine uh, your accuser as guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. And as far as I know, every single state constitution here in the United States. You know, first, you've got to make those legal arguments. And second, you know, the, the court will hear evidence and certainly allow both sides, including the defense, to make arguments about you know, what are the parameters around how the child's gonna testify. Um, it may the court may require counseling or medical records to be turned over to the defense. Um, last but not least, if these accommodations are allowed, it's critical that the attorney explain to the jury what these are for. And explain to the jury that these aren't necessary. They're not 
the system that our laws are based upon. These are special exceptions because this person doesn't have the ability to come in and make their accusation against the person whose life is on the line. So relaying that information to the jury so that they can consider it and factor it into their credibility decisions is, is, is critically important. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I know that a lot of the general public and probably even myself would be a little squeamish about seeing a child being cross-examined. And please don't judge me because <laughs> I know we do this podcast and, and you know, I, I have my own opinions too, but I know it needs to be done in the name of, of justice. So like, what would you say about the importance of cross-examining the child accuser in any sexual misconduct case? Why is that important? Well, I think first, Erica, you wouldn't be squeamish if you saw me cross-examine a child because what I'm not going to do is go up there and, and treat them like some kind of, some, some liar that's got some agenda that uh, I need to you know, rip and tear apart like a shark tearing into a tuna fish. I'm going to talk to the child about, you know, what are they interested in? You know, let's talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Teen Titans. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about SpongeBob. Let's talk about Blue's Clues. And then let's talk about what's real and what's not real. Let's talk about what happens when you don't tell the truth. Let's talk about motive. Let's talk about things like, you know, if you want a cookie and mommy's not giving you a cookie, but you really want that cookie, what are we going to do about that? How do we get that cookie? And tell me, how are you going to go about getting that cookie? Because if you can connect with the child, the child will start to trust you and the child will start to actually be truthful with you. And then the child says, well, I'm going to wait until mommy goes out of the room and I'm going to go get me that cookie. And that relays information to the jury. Because what we think of is, especially in these situations, we've got to protect the child. We've got to protect the child. The child is innocent. But we all know if you have children that children are absolutely not innocent. Children are masterminds of getting around and through the rules of, of pulling one over on their brothers and sisters. And it's very easy to draw that out when you know how to relate to other human beings. You know, Ohio juries are guided by the tests of credibility that are in the Ohio jury instructions. And we're talking about the ability of the witness to observe and relay information, their motive to make up information, their bias, you know, stuff that's been put on them that would cause them to be inaccurate or dishonest. And any sort of like medical or psychological issues that might affect their ability to be truthful. What we know from decades of psychological research is that children's memories are as malleable as a ball of silly putty and incredibly prone to manipulation. 
And that is why, Erica, that cross-examination is so important in, in the case of a child accuser. And this isn't a situation where the goal is to, you know, trick the child with their prior statements, although that can be done and it can be done gently. You, know, you can remind a child, well, you told this person this, but you're telling us something different. And you know, at that point, the child understands that they've been caught and the embarrassment is, is apparent. You don't have to ask the next question where you, know, you ask them to admit what they've done wrong. The jury can see it. You, know, you, you don't have to be mean to the child. You just have to point out the inconsistencies. You know, the, this cross-examination is an excellent opportunity to show the jury a lot of the characteristics that they're looking for in determining the credibility of all of the witnesses. In sexual assault trials, the credibility of the testifying witnesses is often the only detail that affects a jury's decision to convict or acquit. And trial lawyers who have done this enough understand how to get facts out of every kind of witness. Um, not just adults, but children as well. Well, I think that's important. I mean, it's that approach sounds totally appropriate. And it, it is so important to make sure that somebody's life isn't ruined by a false accusation. And children are easily manipulated by an adult that may need or want something from that individual and they want to put the pressure on with a false accusation. So, I mean, I get it. And I'm glad that you have a really good approach to that. And I would expect nothing less. So, I mean, just to mention that if anybody out there does have a situation like this, where they've been falsely accused, or there's even a hint of somebody putting a complaint in about you that has to do with any kind of mis, uh, sexual misconduct, you should definitely give the law office of Brian Jones a call because they're just excellent at what they do and they have the right strategies and the right approach. And this is just a, a really good sample that you've given us here today. Well, thank you for those kind words, Erica. And and I, I'm glad to know that this approach to something that you, know, you as, as somebody who is a potential juror would find acceptable, you know, an, an acceptable and appropriate um, application of uh, the constitutional standards that protect every single one of us, um, you know, from from the government and uh, keeping them accountable. And I appreciate you for engaging in this discussion with me, and I appreciate everybody listening to our discussion today. For you to become more informed about the updates on the Derek Chauvin trial holding police and the government accountable, trial tactics, and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, look to the law office of brianjones.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and at TLOBJ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a discussion of the buzzword substantial compliance and what it means to OVI cases in the state of Ohio. Erica, when I parted ways with my grandfather, he would always tell me, hey kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I'm leaving my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. 
I'll defend your rights, because I'd want mine defended.